This is week two of golf. We told you the month of August, we are going to lower your golf game and enhance your relationship with God all in the same service. And I know a lot of you didn't believe it was true until last week. I learned things last week that I just never, I mean, it was just such a radical uh, a shift to perspective on change that Kip brought us. And we are so blessed to have one of the greatest golf coaches in all of America. Uh, we just saw him in Golf Magazine, big article about him and the AVR Academy right here in La Costa. So I want you to welcome him with me, Kip Pewterball. Thanks, Aaron. Good morning. Uh, today's subject is getting out of trouble. And uh, when we try to get out of trouble, I think one of the first things I try to tell my students, you have to know the equipment you're trying to use to get out of trouble with. And that works throughout life. And in golf, it's amazing how many people don't understand what the equipment is designed for. So the first part of trouble would be the sand shot. Uh, how many of you have ever played golf? How many have ever been in a sand trap? Frustrating? Hard shot? When the tour players say it's one of the easiest shots in the game and the amateurs are completely befuddled by it, I think one of the first things you have to realize is how the club is designed and what it's designed to do. That's different than any other club you swing. If you take the sandwich, and I'm going to ask you have Aaron your help again. He's the mic holder. Okay, is that a sandwich is designed with the back edge of the club where my finger is. It's called the flange, and it's designed to sit lower to the ground or closer to the ground than the front edge. Every other club in your bag is designed to sit this way where the front edge is resting on the ground. So with that in mind, when you're trying to swing a sandwich, you're trying to hit the club to have it hit on the flange or the back of the club and not the front. When that acts as a rudder and it lets the club swing through the sand so it doesn't get caught. And it's amazing how many few people know this. Um, I was very fortunate, I'm gonna add this on. I got to work with Natalie Golbus who plays the LPGA Tour and she had already been on the tour for a year and a half. So she had played collegiate golf, was already playing as a professional and I'm trying to talk to her about the club and I said, did you feel the flange on that shot? And here's an LPGA player. She said, what's the flange? Okay, so if an LPGA player doesn't know it, you're ahead of Natalie Golbus at this time, okay? The flange is here. So you're trying to use that back edge. Well, this works around the green also. When you're trying to hit pitches, you, when you're trying to hit the ball up into the air, you're always trying to get the back of the club to hit the ground so you don't have the club dig. If anybody's played around the green, there's no more frustrating thing than to have you hit the club into the, the ground and the ball goes roughly a couple feet. That's because you're using the front edge of the club instead of the back edge. So once you understand the design of this club, it does help you learn how to play the shot properly. Other problems you get on the golf course, you have to learn to curve the ball. Um, I try to teach most of my students to hit it straight, but occasionally they do hit it crooked. And when you, I take my students out on the golf course, we try to hit shots with curvature and in golf, they're basically called slices and hooks. Okay, if I was to make the analogy of tennis or ping pong, a slice in ping pong is taking the paddle and going like this, and the ball spins. And if you're a right-hander hitting that shot, the ball's going to spin and go to the right. If you're trying to play an offensive or a topspin shot, the paddle's going this way. Well, that's basically what it is in golf. You're trying to hit a shot that goes across the ball, and you're trying to hit one that goes over the ball. Okay, that's going to make the ball curve. So I've gone into the rough with people, and I say, okay, now we've got to slice the ball, and it's got to go 120 yards. And they pull out their 9-iron. What's the problem with that? Now, most of you, if you don't play golf, 9-iron's going to go higher, and 9-irons have more loft. I have a 7-iron here. 
And if I take a seven iron and hit it across the ball, all the ball is going to do is go up the face. The more loft you have on the club, the ball just goes up. It doesn't go across the face. So you can take a nine iron or a seven iron and try to slice as much as you want, and all it's going to do is give a little poof. So if you want to have something that's going to curve, you've got to take loft off the club if you're going across it. So usually from a five iron to a two iron are the clubs I would recommend if you really want to slice the ball. So if you have less loft, then the ball, when you slice across it, the ball won't go up the face, it goes across the face. And now it'll start turning harder. The same works for the, trying to hit a draw or a hook. When you're trying to go this way, you're swinging the club to the right of your target. If I go to the right of the target and close the face, what happens? I'm using a two iron here, that's gonna go right in the ground. So if I wanna hit something that's gonna curve, I gotta use more loft, because I'm taking the loft off of it to make a curve. So I usually use like a five or six iron as my line of demarcation. If I try to take a four iron and try to hook it, I'm gonna most likely just hit it right into the ground. So you have to kinda of know what your clubs are capable of doing. Another shot that gets people in trouble is trying to hit out of fairway bunkers. I know no one else would hit them in there, but fairway bunkers, you try to look at a lip and you go, geez, I don't know if I can make it over that club. So a trick that I learned a long time ago, I hope those in the back can see, is just drop your club on the ground and step on it. And when you step on it, that's the elevation that ball's going to take off on. So I've actually seen tour players, when no one's got the camera on them, walk up and do this. Okay, <laughs> they're trying to say, hmm, I think I can get this over. Now the problem with some people, is that if you're not a tour player, is you're not guaranteed a solid contact every time. But we do tend to get a little greedy. I think I can get this seven iron over this lip. But the lip is the edge of the body you got to go over, okay? And if you think you can get it over, if, what happens if you don't make it? You pay a pretty good penalty because it just goes right in that lip and comes right back at your feet. And sometimes you're fortunate enough to have it run right back into the divot you just made. Now you really got yourself in trouble. So what I try to tell people is what are you trying to gain by taking that 7-iron or the 8-iron? If I was taking, I, I'm going to take a good player, but if I hit a 9-iron 120 yards, I'm going to hit an 8-iron, which has got a little less loft, 130 yards. It's about 8 to 10 yards difference in yardage. So if you needed a 7-iron to get to the pin, and you decide, well, I'm going to take an 8-iron to play safe, all you're going to be is 30 feet short. Why take the risk? But we will take the risk unnecessarily, and we'll try to hit shots we've never hit before in our life. I've had people sit a shot, and I said, have you ever practiced that shot before? No. Well, why did you think you could do it? I don't know. I was just hoping I could do it. Boy. You know, so you got to really go out and work at some of the things to do to learn how to play out of trouble. And the last thing I'll kind of mention is that when we tend to get greedy, I could use the example this year in the PGA Championship. Does anybody know who Roy McIlroy is? Uh, he won the U.S. Open uh, at 22 years old by, I think, 10 strokes. Maybe getting different from Yanni Singh, who won the women's British by 10 strokes. Anyway, uh, he won it by a lot. 22-year-old, phenomenal, phenomenal talent. Okay, he's got a shot in the first round of the tournament, third hole, one of the heavy favorites. His ball's this far behind a root that is of a tree that's about this high, about an inch above the ground. And he's sitting there in the third hole of the championship, big root, club in his hand, and he thinks to himself, I think I can hit this ball and let go of the club before it hits the root so I won't hurt myself. 
that's a pretty big risk, okay? And he decided to go for it. And unfortunately, he didn't let go in time. Now, you got a club going at, you know, even if it's a five iron, it's going 85 to 90 miles an hour, and you're going to stop, take your hands off the club when you hit the ball within an inch? That's pretty far-fetched. And while he ended up hurting his wrist quite badly, he had an MRI, he could continue to play, but he's letting go of the club every time, and he has not been a threat. And he really threatened his whole career, because people have lost their whole career with wrist injuries on the PGA Tour or any tour, because wrist injuries don't heal very well. He took his whole career and put it at risk for what? One shot. Man, that's... And I'm sure in hindsight he goes, man, that was stupid. <laughs> okay? But at the time of the, he did it, he really thought he needed to take that risk. And that's a little bit greedy. Okay? So that's it. Thank you, Kip. Appreciate it, man. So if you want to learn golf from the best, go see... Kip. And, you know, as we were doing this series, as I knew Kip was going to be talking about getting out of hazards, getting out of sand traps, getting out of challenges. I really began to pray over the last couple of weeks and ask God, what's the biggest sand trap of life today? What's the biggest sand trap that we find ourselves in as people? The biggest sand trap our country has found itself in. You know, and I really began to pray and think about that. And I know, you know, I'm just going to warn you up front. This is not going to be probably the most comfortable message you'll ever sit through. Uh, a lot of people this morning got very, very uncomfortable because it's a very difficult message. It's all found in the Word of God. But, I mean, no, there's always chapters in the Bible we wish weren't there. Our life would be a lot easier if Jesus didn't say that. Uh, it would be a lot more comfortable if I didn't have to think about that. But this is one of the biggest sand traps of life. You know, with uh, watching the news the last couple of weeks, the whole, you know, Congress debating over raising the debt ceiling. You know, the financial trouble that our country has gotten into. The financial trouble you see Americans in. The financial trouble you see different companies and corporations in in America. And I begin to think, what's one of the biggest sand traps of life? One of the biggest sand traps of our country? One of the biggest sand traps of corporations? One of the biggest sand traps of individuals personally, greed. Greed. Greed blinds us. Greed keeps us in the sand trap. But because of greed, we don't ever get out of the sand trap. We stay stuck, camped out on a beach for the rest of our life, living in a sand trap. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically with the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us that, listen, if you want to make the gospel real, if you want to know what it means to follow me, to, to call yourself a Christian, to really make the, take the gospel and truly live it out from Scripture, not your idea of the gospel or the American view of the gospel, but truly take the gospel from the Scripture and live it out, this is what it's going to look like. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was all about. And in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to teach on money and possessions and he has quite actually a lot to say about money and possessions. He tells us, we, we draw out of this chapter how money exercises control or, or power over us. He talks about why money exercises control and power us, over us and he talks about how you can break the control or the power of money over your life. And I want to look at this with you. If we're going to look out how to get out of the sand trap of greed, we've got to understand how greed works, why greed works, and how to break the power of greed in our life. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, read with me. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moss and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. 
Your eye is the lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And the light you think you have is actually darkness and how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or have enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you, worth, aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers, which are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have such little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. So seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. How does money exercise power over us? The first thing I want you to see about this passage of Scripture, the first thing that's very curious for a lot of interpreters is, as you're reading along, you got verses 19 to 21, which are all about money and possessions, and then again, verse 24 to 34, all about money and possessions. But right in the middle of this sermon about money from Jesus, right in the middle of it, Jesus throws in a paragraph that doesn't quite make sense with the rest of the chapter. He says, your eye is the lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. Well, what does that mean? What does that have to do with money? This is a teaching on money and possessions. What does your eye, being the lamp of your body, have anything to do with money? Well, if you understand what he's saying, he's basically saying your eye is the only part of your physical body that can receive light. Your eye is the only part of who you are as a human being that can take in light. If your eye is dark, then by default, the rest of your body is dark. See, your feet can't see, so you're going to stub your toe if your eye doesn't work. Why? Because if your eye is in darkness, your foot is in darkness, even if you're standing in a room full of light. And the problem with this is if you don't know you're in darkness, how great that darkness is, Jesus says. Well, what is he saying? Well, if you study Luke chapter 11 and chapter 12, we see the very same sermon taking place. And Jesus talks about this very passage about the eye being the lamp of the body. And he goes on in Luke 12, verse 15. Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Guard yourself against greed, Jesus is saying. Why? Because greed is the only sin you don't know you have. Greed blinds you to itself. See, materialism or greed is an inordinate desire or dependence on money or material things. This is what greed does. Greed blinds you. It blinds you spiritually. It blinds your perception on life, blinds your perception on career, your, your, your view of family. Greed absolutely blinds you to the materialism. There is a, a pastor I know, Tim Keller in New York, who is Speaking to a businessman down on Wall Street, he was doing a seven-week series, like a, a businessman's breakfast, and he was talking about the seven deadly sins. 
And his wife asked him, he said, are you announcing each of the sins before you, you, you get to whatever you're speaking on that week? Are they going to know the subject ahead of time? And he goes, yes. And he goes, watch. His, his wife said, watch. When you speak on greed, it'll be your lowest attended meeting. And sure enough, it was. It was no, no one turned out to hear a whole message on greed. They didn't show up, but not for what you think. See, automatically we assume this is, you know, these are New York businessmen. They don't want to hear on greed. They don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be convicted. But that wasn't why they didn't show up. The reason they didn't show up is because they thought they would be bored. They thought, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not greedy. I don't struggle with materialism. I don't, I don't struggle with greed. I don't want to go hear a message on greed. And that's the problem. See, th- this is the reason. We don't consider the possibility that we could be greedy. We, we, we don't think we are. We think that's for rich people. That's somebody, f- that, greed is for somebody far richer than me. So we don't think about the possibility. And the problem is we all know somebody. Every one of us, we know somebody who we feel is a little bit more extravagant with money, a little bit more materialistic than we are, a little bit more greedy than we are, and so naturally we don't assume we struggle with it. See, as long as you know one person you think is greedier than you, as long as you know one person you feel is more extravagant than you or more materialistic than you, then you automatically assume this isn't your issue, this isn't you, that's that person, this is something they need to hear preach, this doesn't apply to me. And see, that's the symptom of the greed is you don't know you have it. The key symptom, see, some of you are sitting right now saying, well, this doesn't apply to me. It's a very dangerous position to be in because how do you know? Jesus said you won't know if you struggle with greed. You won't know if you struggle with materialism because the symptom of greed is it blinds you. See, as a pastor, you know, I've been in ministry for 17 years now. I've had people in my office that have confessed every type of sin under the sun imaginable. I mean, I could write a movie with some of the stuff I've heard in my office. But you know the thing that I've never heard anyone say? In 17 years of ministry, I've not had one person come in and say, Pastor, I struggle with greed. Pastor, I think I have the sin of materialism. Never heard it. Never in 17 years have I ever heard anyone confess the struggle, and that's the symptom. It blinds you. Now, how does it, how does it act exactly blind you? Let me give you some examples of how materialism or how greed actually blinds you. It has the power. Materialism has the power to get you to choose a job, not something you love, not something you're passionate about, not something that helps people, not something that makes a difference, but choose a job strictly based on how much money you can make. Greed has that power in your life. And I'm not saying everyone does that, so don't feel like I'm singling anyone out because I, I, I wrote this message with nobody in mind. This is just teaching straight from the Word of God. This is not coming down on anyone because there are some people in this situation, there are some people not in this situation, but materialism has the power to get you to choose a job simply based on money. We got a, we got a young man in our church, Scott and Ann. They, were, they come to first service every week, and Scott did this very thing. He chose a job because it was a great career. It paid a lot of money, and he was very successful. And what happened is he realized he had to sacrifice his family for that job. He was on the road the majority of his time. He was, he was always away from his children, away from his wife. And him and his wife got together about a year ago, and they said, you know what? It's just not worth it. The money is not worth it. I don't want this money if it means I've got to be away from my wife, if it means I've got to be away from my children this month. I, it's, it's just not worth it to me. And I was so proud of him for making that decision to say, you know what, I would rather take a lesser paying job to be a part of my family's life than to take a job simply 
based on money. That's the motivation for the job, is money. And see, that's the problem, is it blinds you. It'll make you do things that you wouldn't normally do, simply being motivated by money. Another example of materialism. Materialism has the power to make you not ask questions about your job. You don't ask the how about your career. How many know in America today, there are companies, there are corporations that we all know that are destroying the environment, they're destroying cities, they're destroying neighborhoods, they're destroying people's livelihoods, they're destroying communities, and materialism has the power you to work in a job, to work in a company, and simply not at, no one's sitting around saying, ha ha, look at what we're doing. You know, we're, we're destroying these people, we're destroying, no, no one's sitting around doing that, they're simply not asking the question, what is the business practice of our company? How does our company operate? See, greed has the power to blind you. You'll stop asking important questions. And and please understand, this is not an anti-capitalist message. I am a capitalist. I believe in capitalism. I believe Jesus taught capitalism in the parable of the stewards. So I am pro, and there are a lot of great companies out there. There are a lot of good companies doing a great job, a lot of great corporations. And so I am all about corporations and companies. But how many will agree with me? There are companies that have some really bad business practices because they're motivated by greed. And there are a lot of good people working in those companies who simply won't ask the question, should this be where I'm working? Do I believe in what this company is doing? And see, materialism has that power to blind you. Do you realize I read an article the other day that if every American... If every American just spent $64 a year more to buy American-made products, we would create 200,000 new jobs. $64 more a year, we would create 200,000 new jobs in America. And it's true. I was in Walmart the other day, and I was you know, in the, in the food section. There was a can of peaches. And just for literally just a couple cents more, there was another can of peaches made in America instead of made in China. And yet, what do we do because we're trying to save a penny, not, not thinking, not asking tough questions? We go with the made in China. Now, I'm not against China. I'm not saying anything like that. But I am for America. And I want to help people who are unemployed in America and help people who are out of work in America. And if it means me spending a couple extra cents at the grocery store, 64 extra dollars a year to help make American jobs, then I'll do it. It's worth it to me. Materialism also has the power. It it keeps you from asking hard questions about your lifestyle. See, one of the problems of being a professional in America today, see, for most of us that are in the middle class, we go to the bowling alley, and by and large, everyone there pretty much makes the same amount of money. I mean, by and large. But once you get your ticket into the professional world, I mean, you're at parties, you're at events, you're at functions with people who make seven times the amount of money you make. I mean, it's all over the map. You know, at the bowling alley, we're all pretty much in the same range. But once you get into the professional world, it's all over the map. You can work with someone who's just three steps ahead of you, and they make ten times more than you make. And it's difficult, and so we don't ask questions. Should I be spending this much money on clothes? Should I be spending this much money to renovate our home? And and listen, I'm not creating a general rule of thumb across the board because it's different for everybody. See, one person could spend the same amount of money on this that this person, and it's totally fine for them and totally greed for them based on what they make, where they are, where they're at, where their heart is. So listen, this is not a rule across the board. Everybody's different. The key is, are you asking tough questions? You know, in 1635, there's a man by the name of Robert Kane. He was part of the first congregational church in Boston, Massachusetts. 
And the church elders got together and they disciplined Robert for the sin of greed. I've really never even heard of a church disciplining somebody for the sin of greed, but they disciplined this guy for the sin of greed. And when I read this story and found out what they were disciplining him for, they found out he was operating his business at 6% profit. And the church had agreed that you could only operate your business as a Christian for 4% profit. And I know what a lot of you are thinking right now, where in the world is this going? Where in the Bible is 4%? It's not. I I know it sounds crazy, but, but follow me for a second. The church got together and they said, listen, you know, as a church, we know that there's got to be some, some way, that there's got to be a greedy lifestyle or Jesus wouldn't all the time say, beware of greed. I mean, if you follow Jesus' teaching, he was always saying, give your money away, give to the poor, give to the hurting, be generous, beware of greed. I mean, honestly, if I preached about money as much as Jesus talked about money, I wouldn't have a church. I mean, because nobody leaves singing after messages like this. And so they got together and they realized that there's got to be some greedy business practices. There's got to be some type of greedy lifestyles. And we can't judge everyone, but for our community, for our time, for our place, we can't make a decision for future generations. But for where we're at as a church, as a body of believers, we believe 4% should be the standard profit for Christian businesses. Anything above 4% is greed. And so they found out Robert was earning 6% and they disciplined him for the sin of greed. Now, what's the principle of that? Because, you know, today we could never do that as a church. I mean, our economies are so crazy. The, 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 the salaries, the companies, the economy of the world, the world markets is so, we could never in a million years try to create a general rule like that in the church today. But the principle is who do you have in your life? Who have you invited into your life to hold you accountable for materialism? Who have you asked? Who have you given permission to? Somebody that you trust, somebody that, you, that, that, that loves you, that won't get jealous of you, that's godly. Who have you given permission to to hold you accountable for greed since you won't know if you have it? Since the symptom of greed is you have no idea if you struggle with it, who have you invited? And I know what you're thinking. I don't want to invite anyone to that area of my life, and I don't either. I don't want to ask, should I be spending this much on this? I don't want to ask those. I'd rather be blind. I'd rather have a dark eye than ask those type of questions because it's not comfortable. But who have you invited in your life to hold you accountable in this area since you can't know whether or not you struggle with it on your own? See, that's the power. That's how greed darkens your eye. It makes you stop asking questions. Second thing that it does is why money exercises power over us. Let's talk a little bit about the why. We find it in verse 21. Jesus gives us the answer. He says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. What you need to understand about money is money just serves as an indication of where your heart is. Your heart is simply revealed by money. You want to know what somebody's passionate about? You want to know where their heart is? Look at their checkbook. And you'll be able to find out exactly where their heart is because where your treasure is, where your money is, there your heart will also be. Now, for some people, money is a means of getting significance. That's why they want money because money means significance. Now, realize I'm not saying this is for everyone. But there are many people who look at money simply as a means of significance. If I have money, 
then I'm significant. I can live in this community. I can drive this type of car. My kids can go to this school. I can wear these type of clothes. I can eat at these type of restaurants. And money means significance. And so we're geared to get money because if we have money, we feel good about ourselves. We feel significant. And what happens is if you look at money as a means of significance, you're going to become arrogant. You're going to look down on people. Now think about it, if, they started, if you started at the same place they did, would you really be that much further along? If you were born in a village in Africa with no electricity and no opportunity, would you be where you're at today? So do we really have any reason to look down? See, what, that's the problem is, is when you're above somebody economically, you, you, you don't just say, well, I, I, you know, they're beneath me. You just say they're beneath me. And we all do it. It happens so subtly. You sit at a restaurant. You see the busboy breaking his back to bus tables. And it's so easy to look at him and say, he's beneath me. He's not as good as me, obviously, or he'd be doing much better in life. And it makes us arrogant. For other people, it, money, they don't look at money as their significance. They look at money as their security. There are a lot of people, you know, it's not about the significance, it's about the security. See, some people use money for approval, others use it for control. Some people use money to feel important, but others use it to feel safe. Money gives me security. If I have enough money, I feel safe, I feel protected, I can take care of myself and my family if anything ever happens because I have enough money. Let me ask you a question. If you are not today giving your money away in such eye-popping proportions... I mean, if you find it difficult, if you are not so radically generous that the world is absolutely amazed at Christians, why? Why? See, one answer for some people, money's their significance. So if I have money, I'm significant. The other possibility is money is security. Money means I've got control in an uncontrollable world. But Jesus said, money's not going to change your life at all. Money's not going to add a minute. It's not going to add an hour. It's not going to add a day. Money is not going to put you in control. Only God is in control. Money will not prevent tragedy. Money will not prevent divorce. Money will not prevent depression. So is money really a security in life? There was a theology professor, Addison Leach. He had two students in his class that got really fired up for God and wanted to be missionaries. And they went home and told their, their parents, these two young girls, they wanted to be missionaries. And both of their parents said, you know, that's, that's wonderful. It's nice that you want to go and serve. But, you know, before you become a missionary, we want you to get a master's degree. And we want you to have a job so you've got a little bit of work experience and get some money in the bank. And then when you have some security, go be a missionary. And they went back to their profession. They said, what do we tell our parents? And he thought about it, and he said, you know what? Tell your parents that we're on a, a, a little ball of rock spinning through space. And who knows if we're going to hit something or not, but if we, if, we, if we don't hit something, one day on that little ball of rock, there's a trap door that's going to open up beneath you, and you're going to fall off, and you're either going to fall into the everlasting arms of God or nothing at all. And is that master's degree really going to be that important then? See, money will never be a security. Money can't protect you. And then the last thing I want to talk about this morning is how do we break the power of money in our life? How do we break this power of greed? How do we break this power of material? How do we get to a place where we are so radically generous that money has no control over us? The key verses are 19 and 20. Jesus said in six, Matthew 6, 19 and 20, don't store up treasures here on earth 
where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moss and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. That's the key. Where's your treasure? Are you storing treasure on earth or are you storing treasure in heaven? See, and every person in this room has something at the center of your soul that you treasure. And this message is not a a message of poverty Because I do believe God wants us to be blessed, and I do believe God wants us to be prosperous, but prosperity and greed don't go hand in hand. Now, they can, but they don't have to go hand in hand. You can have prosperity without having greed because it's a condition of your heart. It's a condition of where your treasure is. What do you treasure? What is most important to you? See, what, what is treasure? Treasure is basically anything in your life that you say, if I, can, if I can have this, everything's gonna be all right. If I can have this, it's worth it. If I can have this, I'm worth it. And everybody has something in their life like that. Remember Lord of the Rings? Little golem, he had the, he had the little ring he called my precious. My precious. And everyone that got the ring was blinded by the power of the ring. They were completely blinded by the power the ring had over them, but that ring became their precious. That ring became something they were willing to die for. They, they, they would do anything for that ring. They would, they would go to the furthest lengths if they could just have their precious. See, and the Bible tells us that at the center of every one of us, there is something we call precious. There is, there is a treasure. And whatever that thing is, you are a slave to it. In every treasure, the Bible says, every treasure but Jesus insists that you die to purchase it. Jesus was the only treasure that died to purchase you. See, everything else you have to die to purchase, but Jesus is the one that says, I am the one treasure you don't have to die to purchase. I am the one treasure. In fact, I died to purchase you. So how do we make Jesus our treasure? Because only when Jesus becomes the treasure of your life, only when Jesus becomes your precious, will you break the power of greed and materialism in your life. Let me explain it like this. How did Jesus handle his treasure? Think about it. Jesus was the son of God. He was the Lord. He was seated in heavenly hosts. He had angels at his disposal. He was with God in the heavens. You want to talk about ultimate security, ultimate significance, ultimate luck? That was his treasure. Well, what did he do? He gave all of his treasure up to come down and live on this little rock for 33 years with us. When he hung on the cross, they stripped him naked. He was utterly stripped of all possession, of all belonging, but he wasn't just stripped of material things. He was stripped spiritually. His father turned his back on him, and he literally hung on that cross being stripped of all of his treasure And as he hung on that cross, he looked out at us. And he said, if I can have them, it's worth it. See, treasure is something you'll die for. And until you understand how precious you are to Jesus, that Jesus hung on that cross and said, even if I have to go to hell, it's worth it. They're my precious. They're my treasure. They're more significant to me than anything else. I'll do anything for them. 
See, until you understand how Jesus views you, until you really catch the fact that you are his precious, that you are the treasure, you are the apple of his eye, that even if it was just for you, he still would have died, you're never going to break this power in your life. You're his treasure. 1 Peter 2.9 says you are God's very own possession. God purchased you. So let me give you a simple test to know whether or not you struggle with greed. Number one, how do you view rich people? How do you view rich people? See, most of us, you know, it's really easy to despise rich people. You know, to feel superior to rich. If they're rich, it's because they're, they're crooks and they're doing this or they're doing that. And so we actually, it's so funny, middle class people love to feel superior to rich people. You see it all the time. You see them talk down about rich people. You see them criticize rich people. Or there's the flip side, we feel inferior to rich people. We feel like, you know, I can't believe this guy's letting me hang out. I can't believe I'm riding in this guy's car. This, and we, we get envious and we get jealous. See, the gospel is what levels the playing field. See, this is the gospel. You are far more wicked than you ever dared believed, and you are far more loved than you ever dared hoped. Far more wicked keeps you from feeling superior to rich people. Far more love keeps you from feeling inferior to rich people. It levels the playing field. How do you view rich people? Second thing, how do you view poor people? How do you view poor people? Do you respect them? Do you look at them as equals? Do you look at the ability to learn from them? Or do you look down on them? Do you say you're beneath me? And again, the middle class is horrible at this. The middle class loves to look down on the poor. We do it. It's so easy to do. You see somebody, and we just feel like we're better than them. How do you view rich people? How do you view poor people? And do you live generously? Do you live generously? Matthew 6, verse 22, your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. That word good in the Greek is the word hapless. It has a double meaning. It doesn't just mean good. It also means generous. He was saying when your eye is generous, your whole life is full of light. Isaiah 32 verse 8 says generous people plan to do what is generous. Generous people strategize their generosity. When's the last time you sat down with your wife or your husband or your family and you strategized your giving? You got strategic about your generosity. You made a plan for your generosity. Well, how much should we give? How, you know, how, how generous should we be? Well, look at what Jesus did. Jesus treasured you. He treasured you sacrificially. See, if you want to respond to Jesus, then it's not just living out the cross of Jesus in our relationships. See, we think it's enough to just live out the cross of Christ in our relationships. So I'm going to forgive my brother. But no, you also have to live the cross economically. See, a lot of Christians will say, you know, I'm a Christian and Jesus died for me and he sacrificed for me so that I have to love others as Christ loved me, right? We love others the way Christ loved me. It's, it's Bible. Well, let me ask you, do you love others the way Christ loved you? Because for that to be true, what that really means is you have to give enough money every year where you have to actually sacrifice a part of your lifestyle to be able to give to others because Jesus sacrificed to give to you. So if you want to love others the way Christ loved you, Christ sacrificed to love you, well, are you sacrificing to love others? Because if you're giving out of excess, is there a cross in your giving? Is there a cross in your finances? See, yes, the 10%, that's just the standard. That's just the starting point. 
But for, and for, for some of us, 10% is a cross. But there's a lot of people in America today that 10% doesn't even make a dent. Doesn't change their lifestyle at all. So the question is, is there a cross in your finances? Is there a cross in your giving? Jesus sacrificed to love. Are you sacrificing to love? That's the key. The, the, the cross is the standard. Let me, let me close with this. Diognetus was a early church scholar. He was a part of the early church back during the book of Acts days. And, and, and he would write reports on the early church. And people once asked him, they said, why is the early church so popular? What is so, so amazing about this? Why is it so popular and incredible? And this is what he wrote about the early church. He said, we share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. We share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. What did he mean? He said, you know, the pagans, they, they, they are, with their bodies, they are promiscuous. But with their money, they are stingy. But Christians, with our bodies, we are stingy. And with our money, we are promiscuous. That's what he was saying. As a Christian, we're stingy with our body, but we are promiscuous with our money. As an unbeliever, you're, you're promiscuous with your body, promiscuous sexually, but stingy financially. And this has tremendous public ramifications to the communities we live in. I mean, if we would just take the Sermon on the Mount and live it out, it would change neighborhoods. Let me ask you a question. Where do you want your children to grow up? Do you want your children to grow up in a community where people are promiscuous with their bodies and stingy with their finances? Or do you want your children to grow up in a community where people are stingy with their bodies and promiscuous with their finances? Do you want your children growing up where people can't control their physical lusts? Or someone that's stingy with their body, that keeps their body to the marriage bed and is generous with their finances. This is one of life's greatest sand traps. It's America's greatest sand trap. It's company's greatest sand trap. And the only way you're going to hit yourself out of this sand trap is making Jesus the treasure in your life. Close your eyes with me.